Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Matt Stinton is here. He has recently assumed a position as not only the beverage director for Hearth Restaurant in the East Village, but all of the terroir wine bars in New York. He works for Paul Greco, and we'll hear what that's like. Matt Stinton is here. Matt's recently been promoted to overseeing the wine list at all of the terroir wine bars in Manhattan and also has for a while now been the beverage director at Hearth Restaurant in the East Village. Hello. Hello. Thank Welcome you. back to Broadway, my friend. Thank you very much. I... Uh... It's it's a neighborhood I don't come to very often uh, anymore, but uh, when I first moved here, the producer of the show that I moved here from Chicago with uh, was at 1515 Broadway, which is right across, so it was one of the first uh, buildings in New York that I ever walked into. It was a musical show. It was not a musical. It was a show called Beautiful Thing. Oh, okay. uh, so it was an English uh, playwright who wrote, uh, and we performed the... Um, U.S. debut of the show in Chicago, and then eventually moved to New York and was produced at the Cherry Lane Theater down in uh, the West Village. So You were doing theater work in Chicago before you moved here? Yeah, I went to school. Uh, I went to Illinois State University to become an actor. Um, was lucky enough to have a show when I graduated, which that show then brought me to New York. So you couldn't have really asked for a better uh, start of a career than being transferred seven months after you graduate from college to do an off-Broadway show in New York. And you were like in the Times or something? I was. The, well, the, I mean, the show got reviewed, and uh, the picture, the the promotional pictures from the show were on the front page of the art section of the Monday Times, which was very exciting. I was also... Like, you, how long have you been at New York in that time? Like one month and you're in the Times? Yeah, it was, it was probably about a month you know, maybe six weeks that I'd been here and I was on the Times. I was in the Times and my name was being mentioned uh, favorably, which was pretty cool. The The show got pretty good reviews. Um, and we ran for, I think, about eight months um, and, uh, you know, lived that crazy life. You know, you work about 14 hours a week uh, and you get paid to be on stage and perform. Um, but you still find ways to complain about it. Like, oh God, <laughs> kind of like the wine business. On oh, exactly. I got to open another bottle of forty-five <laughs> Mouton. Yeah. Damn. Oh, jeez. I, I guess I should taste it. My life is so difficult. Yeah. 
I'm traveling through Liguria right now. This is really tough. <laughs> it's it's tough because I have to answer emails. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, but uh, yeah. Anyway, so that that was the my introduction to New York. So you're doing some acting and some. I was doing Broadway. acting. Uh, Off Broadway is about as big as I got. I did a Law and Order Special ah. Victims Unit. Every New York actor's rite of passage. Yeah, it it, uh, it pays for a lot of lunches. Were you a victim or a suspect? I was the roommate of a suspect in a rape murder of a, uh, a New York socialite. Oh, okay. So nice I, apartment then. It, well, the, I was in the dorm room, which they converted a church. Uh, they shot like five scenes, different scenes, all in from like different locations inside of one church. They just like recreated rooms it was pretty impressive who's in your episode it was uh well in the scene was um uh, ice t and richard belzer oh nice two guys and i got i got some pretty i got some acting advice from ice t did you really what do you say well you know uh, being a stage actor you're not used you're used to like blackouts right or like you exit the stage like but in law and order every scene ends with like somebody looking into the camera out, yeah mean. you know yeah. just sort of staring into the camera but not really saying anything and then dun, dun, and then they go to another scene and i was having a pretty difficult time with it because you know like i've never done anything like yeah. that before and ice t came up to me he's like he says uh yo man i can tell you're having a, a tough time with the scene what you want to do is you want to look in the camera and say i want to tell you but fuck you. Yeah. And then he walked away. And I, that was the acting advice I got from Ice-T. Got to die harder than Bruce Willis if you're going to do this shit right. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So that, that, uh, that I knew I made it. I knew I made it when Ice-T gave me acting advice. So. I mean, did you get to shoot the shit with Belzer too? Or was it just the... Uh... I mean, they, he was there. Like, there wasn't a lot of like shooting the shit. It's yeah. not like I sat down and was like, hey, you know, I yeah. remember you as a comedian. Like I didn't, there wasn't really time What's to do What's your that. favorite vintage of Latour? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> what would you drink? What would you pair with this uh, craft services meal? Um, but yeah, it, you know, like doing a Law & Order while it is like a total rite of passage, it, it fed, it has fed a lot of, you know, struggling New York actors. So good thing for it, you know. So speaking about feeding people, somehow you got involved in the restaurant gig. How did that happen? Well, it's a pretty natural. If you're an actor, chances are you're you're working in a restaurant. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I I moved here. I I worked in a restaurant in Chicago before I moved here. Um, when I was doing the play, uh, you know, that was pretty much my whole. I I did some like temp work. The uh, uh, but I I started working in in restaurants like the day after the show closed, and I worked at a place called Cafe Saint Bart's. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is 50th and Park. and Park. Yeah. yeah, it's a nice church. Yeah, it's a beautiful like sometimes church. Sometimes I just wander by and like, wow, this is really beautiful. Yeah, and right uh, across the street from the Waldorf Astoria. Um, but it was an outdoor, like it's a huge outdoor patio with a with a kitchen that's about a third the size of this room. So and not you'd big. Pump out like, you know, you do 150 covers at lunch in 45 minutes, and you know, burgers and that sort of thing. Um, and I was really bad at it at first, and then I got pretty good at it, and then it's I just worked... like sending facts. Just, yeah, exactly. I'm so much better at sending faxes <laughs> now than I was then. Um, and then I, I also worked at a restaurant called uh, uh, it was then it was called Fifty Three Grove Street, which was Fifty Three Grove Street down in the West Village, which is now I think a like a Pan Asian restaurant. But that was like uh, I don't know how much I can say, but that was definitely run by a family guy. I see. Um, 
And not the TV show you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Definitely not the TV show. Yeah. Uh, he would tell me, this guy, I, I won't say his name because he might still be out there, but he, he used to say, uh, if someone calls and asks for me on the phone, you have to act like you don't know me. Like, act like you've never heard of me and you just started working here. You're an actor, right? Just act like it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I used to work at a place called 29 Newberry. It was the address. Uh-huh. And they had a rule that if someone called and asked you where we were located, that you were supposed to say you didn't know. Because <laughs> like, people would. People right. would call and be like, where are you guys located again? And you'd be like, I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, I, I cut my teeth, I, I would say, at... Uh, the Atlantic Grill and the BR Guest. Sure. Uh, like a lot of people come to New York. Yeah. You do the Law and Order and you do the BR Guest. And you do BR Guest. Yeah. It, it, there is a, I always say that there's a, uh, a it, with BR Guest, there's sort of a camaraderie, uh, uh, not unlike the Marines, where you, you find somebody who worked for BR Guest. You're like, oh, dude, do you need a couch to stay on? Like, I, I know what you went through. Like, I, I get it. BR Guest was a great um, training ground. And I actually hire a lot of people from BR Guest because. Um, again, like I, I kind of know what they went through and, uh-huh. and like, it's a, it's a huge corporate, very successful restaurant company and they have a great training program. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's also, you know, I like to think of, uh, Danny Meyer and, and Steve Hansen is like, like the two uncles that you have and like one, you know, one uncle like kind of hugs you and like puts you on his knee and tells you great stories. And the other one, you know, is a bit more aggressive. Mm. <laughs> I'll, let like... you, I'll let you choose who, who's who on that. But. <laughs> <laughs> is he asking you to pull his finger or what? how's it going now? Exactly. Yeah. He, he, uh, he, I think the one uncle would say, I'd give you a dollar, but instead of giving you a dollar, I'm going to invest it. And then someday, right. you know, you'll, you'll learn the, the worth of this dollar. Whereas the other uncle's like, uh, here's a teddy bear, and let me tell you about my travels, and uh, good hugs. <laughs> good hugs. <laughs> Come in for the real one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, so I, I, do you want the, like, the whole... Well, I mean, my, how, did you, how did it end up that you started uh, doing at, the Paul thing? The, with Paul. I, uh, I had worked for Danny at, at Blue Smoke um, through a bunch of other restaurants after leaving uh, Be Our Guest. Um, and I lived on 11th Street and uh, went into Hearth as it, like, about a month after it opened. And just uh, to check it out, though. Yeah, just to check it out. Not I, you know, with the intention that you were going to work there. No, 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 not at all. I mean, I was perfectly happy where I was. And, and uh, a friend of mine and I went in and had a, a great dinner. You know, we had like a, like a 10 30 reservation on a Friday night. Um, so we were uh, the last people in the restaurant. And, and Paul actually came over and made a recommendation of wine. Oh, okay. You know, he, he, and he asked all those questions like, what are you looking for? What do you normally drink? And what's your price range? And we kind of gave him the parameters and he picked out. I don't remember what the wine was, but I remember that it was exactly what we wanted. And then after, um, we sat up at the bar and talked with uh, Mike Moraz, who was the bar manager, bartender at the time. And, uh, Paul came over and we just started talking about, you know, uh, life and we drank port and, you know, meanwhile, the, the gates were shutting around us. And you we closed were, the place down. We closed it down. I mean, the, the lights were off with the exception of the bar. Uh, and I was chilling with Paul. Yeah. I didn't know who he was. I, I, you know, this is well before I was interested in, in any of this stuff. But it was also kind of before that restaurant got known for Paul, you know, it was like yeah. a month in, right? 
Yeah, it was a month in, you know, and uh, he had worked with people that I worked with at Blue Smoke. Sure. And so people knew who he was, but I didn't. used to work at Grand I was just like, oh, yeah, he's just some guy who owns a restaurant. And a couple months later, I decided, well, why don't I give this a, a shot and, and uh, um, uh, apply? And he interviewed me. How'd he, that go down? Uh, it was pretty aggressive. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. And he's still pretty aggressive in his interviewing. Like, he showed up uh, late. Uh, it was like 15 minutes late. I just sort of sat there. Uh, getting you know, nervous. Getting nervous. Yeah, sweating more. And he showed up with um, uh, black socks, uh, camouflage shorts, and a Canada Dry jacket. Sounds like my man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he still, I think, I don't think he's changed since that day. Well, that's um, the uniform they give you, yeah. actually, in the Marines with Paul. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the camo. And yeah. The, that's the dress whites. So he uh, he interviewed me and asked me questions that I'd never been asked uh, before. Like, you know, there was role playing in the interview. Really? Like, yeah. Like, okay, you know, I'm sitting down at the table. What would you tell me? Oh. You had to imagine guests and like recommend wine for them. Yeah, and I and and he would correct me in the interview process along the way. I'd say, oh well, you know, this uh, the, the, I had the gnocchi. It was amazing. He goes, oh, you never use superlatives because you don't know where these people have eaten before. You know, they may have you know gone to Tuscany. And the you know the most famous chef uh, in the world may have cooked gnocchi for them, and it was better, you know. So you can't say superlatives, which I thought was really interesting, and I still use like I'd never, I never use like this is the best X, Y, and Z that you're ever going to have because you have no idea where these people have been before. So uh, that's Paul's uh, aggressive hospitality. So yeah, and uh, I got the job and. Uh, I, it was probably uh, in all of my experiences. What kind of job are we talking about here? I was a server, and then eventually a bartender. Okay, you and didn't start at the top of the packing. Order. No, no, no. I, I worked for a year as a server bartender, and it was probably one of the hardest restaurant jobs I've ever had. Well, why is that? Because, um, it it it, it demand the the steps of service and the the expectation that we have uh, as a server are so incredibly high. On the but, amount of the staff and the management. Exactly. Like, it's not, we, we operate in a, a captain, uh, front waiter, back waiter type of service, mm -hmm. but there's only uh, a server and then a back waiter that's shared. So, you know, you the expectations are so incredibly high upon the service staff from top to bottom, and yet, like, we, we operate in a 95-seat casual house where, you know, like, we've got Johnny Cash playing, and, you know, service is, is uh, fine but casual. So it's it's it, it was a difficult role in that where you know the the expectations of you as a as a, a server and an employee to uh, exceed the guest expectations were incredibly high, um, but you know you're a casual restaurant, which I think you know ultimately is a brilliant concept, and when you execute it well, uh, it's the most comfortable people can be, you know, because you you do have and I, and I would say that that's uh, you know in my experiences uh, having eaten at Gramercy Tavern that's what Gramercy Tavern is right you know Gramercy Tavern is such a um, an amazing experience yet you don't feel stuffy or uncomfortable or you know that you're not wearing the right clothes there's not a lot of build up to that experience yeah it's not like hey you should be feeling this right it just kind of happens organically exactly on the part of the customer like if you're cold at Gramercy Tavern they don't wheel over a cashmere sweater cart. So anyway, I, I did that for uh, a year, and then I left because I had that sort of like late twenties crisis of oh yeah, what I am I doing? Well, um, what I've, should I be doing? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, what are the expectations of my parents? Um, although never forced upon me, 
uh, I still felt it in my day-to-day life. Um, so I went into sales. I actually sold beer for a, uh, a beer importing company called Czech Beer Importers, uh, which was a great experience. Um, you know, it, it, it with my knowledge that I kind of gained about beverage from Hearth, I was able to, like, really uh, expand upon that in the world of beer, uh, which I think is, is still an exciting and very... Um, you know, a lot of people think they'd know beer, but probably, you know, they only know a fraction of it. Yeah. Um, but realized I'm, I'm not very good at sales <laughs> and uh, wound up working at the worst job I ever had, which was called Unishippers, which uh, resold DHL shipping rates to Fortune 500 companies. A lot of groupies in that gig. Yeah. Oh, dude, the women that <laughs> flock to you. When you're like, you, all you, you can't even get the word DHL out right. before. By the time you're in the second letter, they're already. <laughs> yeah, there's panties around your uh, head. Um, but that was by far the worst job I've ever had. It was all cold calling. Uh, you know, you'd make 100 phone calls a day. You'd get hung up 90, 95 times, and then you'd get dumped into fake uh, voicemail boxes another five times, and that was your day. Uh, so I quit that job. Were and- you like, Mr. Glengarry, are you there? Yeah, well, I, tr- I watched Ross. that movie a few times uh, <laughs> during that because I was like, I've got it. Like, if you can't close right. on a set. Set of steak knives. Well, yeah, exactly. The, the, the third prize is you're fired. Uh, but there was like that, that lingo of sales, which yeah. is like crazy. Like, you know, one sit, one close, like all of that, like pipe things in the pipeline. Uh-huh. And, and having your whole life based on, on commissions is is terrifying. And what what I realized about sales, and this is not to be – uh, uh, negative to anybody in the world of sales, but like you have to love money, and it doesn't matter what you're selling. It's what matters is that you really enjoy making money. And the 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 really great salesmen that I knew is even in the beer world, they didn't like beer; they just loved selling things. And and it came from this like they knew exactly what their margins were. They knew exactly like, and I'm not that guy. I'm yeah. not a guy who loves money. I, I like having it. Right. And I, you know, it, it's a lot more comfortable to have money than it is to not have money, you but it's burning like burning piles like, of it. And... It's not, it's not a drive in my like day to day life to make money. So, uh, I realized I wasn't good at that and I got out and I called Paul because I was looking for a job. I was actually, I, I, I had gotten into the hotel union I worked at the Peninsula Hotel okay. on 5th and 55th. Yeah, sure, sure. And uh, I and BLT Market was opening uh, up uh, yeah, on uh, Central Park. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, well, if anybody knows you know, if, if, how I can get a bartending position there, that would be great. And Paul said, uh, well, if you're looking to come back to the industry, why don't you manage Hearth? That was nice of him. It was. And totally shocking. Did like, you feel like he always kind of backed you that way? Well, I had been offered that job like three times <laughs> and turned it down every time. Uh, and then the last time it was like, well, I'm, I've come to that point in my life where I realized I didn't want to act anymore. Um, and what I, what I realized is that I had a passion and a skill set that was pretty good for the restaurant industry. Um, so I had that sort of, uh, you know, that weekend of, uh, soul searching and then decided to go for it. And I figured if I was going to manage for anybody, I wanted to manage for Paul and Marco. And why is that? They, the, the culture that they created is very much uh, of the school of Danny Meyer, um, but in a much smaller setting. Um, the the sort of attention to detail and the fact that Paul and Marco are still, nine years later, still active 
members in the day-to-day operations of that restaurant um, is, you know, very admirable. And they make you want to work for them. Um, They're both uh, incredible, uh, incredible personalities, but there's a passion and and a knowledge and an experience that's behind it that you that you hope to achieve someday and you know to use marco as an example um you know marco like most chefs you know can kind of go off the handle and it's almost always about small things it's never about a big thing it's always about the small details and you know i think it's easy to kind of roll your eyes and go well you know whatever it's a carrot you know who cares how i chopped it but at the end of the day, his food is so great because of those small details that go into it. And it's the same way with Paul. You know, Paul and his uh, concepts of how to write a wine list and how to run a program and how to run a hospitality program, which is ultimately what he does. You know, the, the small details, you can kind of go, well, you know, whatever. Like, you know, so, you know, we don't have um, every country that we want to represented by the glass, no big deal. And then he says, well, here are the reasons why you want to do it. And then it makes sense. So they're always right. Even in, in their crazy uh, attention to details, they're right. And uh, I don't know if that's just because I drank the Kool-Aid or not, but I think what's made them successful and what's made... Because clearly they are successful. They're successful. And what what has made, I think, uh, Paul's wine program successful is his diversity and his attention to the small details of how to write, write a wine program. So I definitely want to get to Paul and the wine program because that's your that's your your world. Yeah. But I mean, first of all, let me ask you, what was it like serving Marco's food in East Village at that time, even before you were a manager? I mean, what was the reception like from the neighborhood? Uh, it was, I mean, it's always, it's always been great. Um, I think a lot of people had a tough time trying to figure us out at first because you know, you had that buzz of opening and, you know, you had Chef Marco Canora who opened Craft under Tom and then Craft Bar was his and now this is his project in the East Village. Which uh, is a little bit lower numerically in street number than some of the other projects. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we're on 12th Street and 1st Avenue. Um, and at the time, this is nine years ago, um, nothing was like us around there. It was like a Polish restaurant called like the Neptune Diner. Uh, you had Popeyes on the same block as us, and the Pak Punjab was kind of the social network yeah. of the area. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you had like uh, you know Baran A, and you know like it, we were definitely we made a big statement when we got in there, and I, and I didn't open the place, mind you, but uh, I showed up about a year after, and uh, like I said, people were shocked at I think at the the price, mm-hmm. but then equally shocked at the quality. And, you know, the, the, I think the beauty of Marco's food, uh, and a guest said this to me once, is that it, Marco's food is the black dress. And, you know, anyone can buy a black dress, but Elizabeth Taylor wore a black dress. And I think, you know, anyone can make spaghetti and meatballs, but Marco's meatballs are better than you can even hope to make. And, like, and I think the gnocchi is, is a classic um, example of that, you know, it's something so simple, but... I've never had gnocchi that's tasted like that, you know, before or after I worked with, with Marco, you know, it's, and, and it's, again, it's that attention to detail and Marco will say, it's all about ratio. It's all about the ratio of flour, uh, to water and that's it. And, uh, you know, he takes something that's relatively simple conceptually and makes it great. So once you achieve the beverage director role at Hearth, what was it like pairing wine with that food? It's super easy. 
I mean, you know, the great part about uh, the beverage program that Paul started and that I eventually uh, took over uh, with his guidance is that it's all seasonal and Marco's food is incredibly seasonal. Um, we also, uh, our palate, uh, uh, Paul's and my palate are more focused on wines that go with food. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have, uh, uh, you know, we're not looking for wines that stand alone or, or you know, they they almost demand food, and Marco's food fills it right in there. There, you know, Marco's food is savory. There's balance in it with acidity. Uh, you've got acidity, salt. You have textural uh, qualities. He's always got something crunchy there and something soft there, and um, and e- every dish is like that. From uh, what we would consider our house salad or our greens market salad, you know, all the way to uh, you know, roasted pork loin. All of those uh, uh, dishes have the complexity and the balance of it. So pairing wine with that is super easy. And you can get funky. You can, you know, I mean, the uh, again, like I never drank sherry before I started working for Paul. But sherry is an incredible uh, uh, wine to pair with food at any stage. I mean, you can do, you know, a, a crisp manzanilla with a, you know, with a, a an escarole salad and then it'll pop out or the ribbly de soup. And then you can go into an Oloroso with something that's got like a smoky, savory pork quality. And then you've got, you know, a PX that'll go with dessert. So, uh, you know, the, the diversity of the wine program, uh, I think, matches really, really well with the food program that Marco set up. So, And I remember when Hearth first opened, they were... Paul had set up a program where the wine list actually completely changed every season. Like four times a year, the complete list was overhauled yeah. and there were no carryovers. Yeah, he had a he had an end-of-the-season page where he would put the wines that were no longer really uh, seasonal in his um, point of view, and he put them on kind of like a discount, like a 25% off page or something like that, and that's how we would run through the inventory. Um, what was that learning curve like? Like one day you come in and it's a completely new list. Well, uh, you know, in terms of the bottle program, you know, from a server's point of view, we don't ask our servers to know all the bottles. Got it. Because that would be a lot. That's a lot. Uh, but we do demand that they know every wine by the glass inside and out. And the wine by the glass program would change almost daily. Mm-hmm. You know, back then it would change daily. I think it changes even more now. Um, with Terroir uh, East Village being part of that mix, um, so it, it, it's a program that demands, it challenges you in a very demanding way and you either get inspired by it, uh, and kind of take the path that I took, or you say, you know what, I'm, <laughs> I'm out like, this is too hard and I don't want to, I don't want to be part of it. And, you know, if I uh, can talk about Paul's sort of theories on wine, please do. um, or, or running a wine program, it needs to change and, and, and not for the guest necessarily. We do a lot of things for us mm-hmm. that happen to be interesting to people that come in. And I think Summer of Riesling obviously is a, a, a huge uh, statement of that. You know, Paul said, you know what, fuck it. We opened up our little wine bar and I'm going to say that every white wine by the glass, including sparkling, is going to be Riesling. And it met with tremendous like feedback, like pushback because we had just opened East Village. Mm-hmm. And... um to see where it was and where it's come now, you know, we, de- we do it for us. And we hope that people appreciate it, but ultimately we do it for us. And I think that's what makes us so successful, especially with the industry folk, because they can know that, you know, this is, uh, 
the overlord's maniacal program that changes constantly. But, uh, I mean, is it really as crazy as it seems? I mean, sometimes I think people are like, oh, Paul just likes any crazy wine. Is that true? Or what's the reality of that? No, I, I, that's a misconception, I think, that um, what Paul uh, goes for is a sense of terroir. And, you know, he's kind of built a reputation, uh, and I think it's a false reputation, that he just goes after crazy varietals that no one's ever heard of before and puts that in people's faces and says, you're going to drink this. And that's not really true. What he looks for is um, true expressions of every sense of that wine, varietal, uh, where, it fr- where it's from, and the person who made it. And vintage, correct, as well. So, you know, while... You know, I'd never heard of Gruner Veltliner before I worked for Paul. You know, it, it's that's not a varietal that's like off the charts, totally weird. Um, you know, I'd never heard of Kadarkar before, but they've been producing Kadarkar for, you know, centuries. So, you know, to, because we hadn't heard of it doesn't mean that it's a crazy eclectic grape. And I would almost say that the experimental stuff uh, is more off of our radar. We're not really into guys who are, um, you know, producing crazy varietals in crazy places, you know, although I'm, I'm kind of leaning more toward the, the Portuguese and, and Italian varietals coming out of California. I kind of, I dig it, but I think it's an interesting movement because it's, they're doing it not because it's weird, but because they feel that the terroir is acceptable to Nebbiolo or, uh, I just got the Forlorn Hope Verdelho, which is like awesome. And it's a really cool expression. And I think that, you know, it's important that winemakers are stretching that, uh, I guess, that limit of terroir. But uh, ultimately, the, the parameters that Paul sets is that it must express terroir. So in a way, it's not that it hasn't been heard of. It's that it, it's possible that you can sell it if it hasn't been heard of. But it, usually it needs to express some tradition or history. Yeah, absolutely. So as long as there is a history, then it's okay even if Americans have never heard of that history before. Right. And 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 I would say that uh his wine program I think was way it was it was a I don't want to say it's a, it was ahead of its time, but when he opened Hearth, his wine program was a lot more surprising to people. And now 9 years later, I, you know, while we're still dynamic, it, you know, it's not like the Breslin doesn't have the wines that we choose and it's not like like, you know, even the small places, like one of my favorite places uh, to go is a place called Jake Walk in Brooklyn. Uh-huh, sure. Like, you know, they've got a list, I think it's like four or five whites, four or five reds, all awesome, really specific, um, varietal specific uh, traditional wines, which, you know, again, 10 years ago, people would be like, okay, well, I got to have a Chardonnay and I probably have to have a Sauvignon Blanc and I've got to have a Cabernet Sauvignon. And then I get to throw a Cabernet Franc in there because I like it and it never moves. I think the, I think the movement has changed to where people, e- even the, the uh, consumer is saying, like, I want something different. So does the fact that that's actually happened in the subsequent years mean that it really wasn't so much crazy as it hadn't been done yet? I think, I think that's more uh, accurate. I don't, think, I don't think Paul's views on wines are crazy. I think uh, some of the ways that he goes about um, pushing wines. Mm-hmm. The it, Paris Hilton references. Exactly. The, yeah, telling the stories the in bandit, these long, the you know, the, kind of stuff. the Chateau Moussard, if Satan and Jesus had a baby, you know, mm-hmm. that, that I think is still um, pretty cutting edge and is, it will always be, you know, 
uh, a, a line that people don't follow. Mm-hmm. But what uh, do you think the advantage of of talking that way is? Does it reach a more popular culture audience when you make those references? That... I, well, I think it demystifies wine, which mm-hmm. wine it needs to be de- demystified in my mind. Like I, I think wine is such an intimidating subject for people. Um, and will always be because you're, you, you know, unless you're grown up in a, in a wine drinking family or a wine producing family, chances are you come to really appreciate wine in these social settings where there's some sort of status, whether it's a date or, you know, a business meeting or whatever. And you want to look like, you know, what you're talking about, but it's so, I mean, you know, I, you don't want to lose face. You don't want to lose face, but it's still like I still have problems talking about wine because there's you know there's a guy sitting across from me on a microphone who probably knows more, you know, or there's you know like you know there's that wine uh, salesman who has information that you don't necessarily have. So there's still like it's still intimidating, and and you know ultimately at this stage of my career, I'm not afraid to ask questions anymore. I'm not afraid to feel stupid. Did you feel like that that was a big? plateau for you like when you hit that stage where yeah. you were comfortable with asking questions when, when you're comfortable with what you don't know yeah. that was that was probably the biggest step that i took in in the my wine career is saying oh shit i don't have to know everything and in fact um the the more i i realize i don't know the better off i'm going to become educated because i'm going to ask those questions is uh, chances robinson said in an interview she says, the more you know, the more you learn about wine, the more you realize how much you don't know. Sure. And like if fucking Jances Robinson says that, like where am I going to get off saying like, oh yeah, I, I got it. Covered. Covered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. next. You <laughs> yeah. know? Um, and it, it's ever changing too. Like, you know, now uh, people are bringing me wines from Croatia. Now I have to learn climates in Croatia. Like you got to be kidding me. Right. You know, I'm just getting on top of like everything that that you know, champagne and Burgundy have to offer. Now here's Croatia right. with microclimates and soil types and historical. How long we're talking about rings of Saturn, you know? yeah, exactly. You yeah, know? like the moon. Like, oh, this one's you know, this is a Chardonnay on the moon, and then you know, it turns out Chardonnay's been planted for a hundred years on the moon. It's Craters not a new are, thing. Yeah. yeah, the crater vineyards are amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sun traps, basically. Right. Well, the, the, only the ones with northern exposure. Right. Right. right, right. You know, the southern exposure. That's just that's table wine. They only have a vintage like once every five years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, and, uh, and I think what Paul's writings have done is that they, they bring it down to a level where you can laugh about it and say, okay. Where you can laugh about it. Where you can laugh about it. Where you everyone's know? comfortable now. Yeah, and, and the stories that he tells, and, and uh, he, <laughs> sort of off the subject, he, he wrote a thing about brunch in Park Slope. And he wrote a page about brunch. And it was drawing out, like, the history of brunch. And the first brunches were intended for, you know, uh, the Englishman who would go out all night and then found a reason to not go to church. And it was because of brunch. And it was like, where the hell did you find this stuff? Yeah. So, and his stories, I mean, he tells a story. And that's ultimately what, you know, I think what wine should do is tell a story more than anything else. So you talked a little bit about the ever-changing list. Is that somewhat of a challenge from a beverage project- director standpoint to find new things to constantly be putting on? Or are there just so many new things you want to put on, it's not a problem? Well, it's a, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, it's it's challenging that, you know, we take, you know, our, our glass program takes the three to five case drop, and then we don't reorder it. So you're constantly having to find something to replace and keep it dynamic. It'd be a whole lot easier if we only changed that wine list, you know, once every four and a half months. But that's not who we are. And, you know, 
and again, like we're doing it for us. I, I don't think there's a guest that comes in and says, uh, you know, I had this, I had all these wines the last time I came in, like boring, you guys are losing your step. We're doing it to keep us motivated. And, you know, one thing that I learned from Paul, which is another really difficult part of the program to maintain is that, you know, we buy from 25 to 30 people. Yeah. You know, and there's new people every week. Yeah. You know, another guy broke off from Polliner and started his own company. And he's got, you know, they're all like small, you know, family run. You know, they're right. all the things that you want. It's like gremlins. Don't get them wet. They oh. multiply. You know what I <laughs> for mean? For real. It's and, like, how many are there? Jesus. And like kudos to them for for, for like pursuing that passion and finding yeah. these wines and doing all the fucking grunt work of getting it into the country and then having to sell it. And, you know, that they're doing God's work at that point. But we try and keep all of them happy. You know, we try and make sure that, you know, uh, we're not just buying from four people and, and they run our program. We want to make sure that we take care of everybody. And that's an incredibly challenging thing with as many uh, people that we buy from and we have solid, amazing relationships to try and keep them all in the loop and happy and try and keep your program, uh, uh, you know, um, Diverse in that way, you know? And then when you try and focus on something too, it's like, well, you know, uh, Austria. And you're like, awesome. Well, you know, Wildman's got Monica's, Caja's wines, and that's great. Like, so easy. I love, you know, Monica goes through uh, Wildman and Shearbrook. Great. I'll just buy Monica's wines. But no, you want to buy, you want to find, you know, Winemonger and James Wright and what he's bringing in. And you want to diversify. So you have to like say, okay, well, we'll buy this from Wildman. We'll buy this from Sherbrook. We'll buy this from James. We'll buy this from Vine Collective and, and try and keep them all happy. And it's, it's hard. <laughs> so, um, but again, like, uh, you know, you, you think about what the alternative would be. And then you go, well, then what else would I do? Like if I just bought wine for four and a half months, then what would I be doing? Like, then you just sort of manage numbers at that point. You're just kind of making sure that your numbers are maintained and that you reorder when you need to reorder. This keeps you engaged and moving. And Do you think that's part of the appeal? Like you say you do it for you, the staff. Is keeping the staff engaged and kind of excited about something new kind of rub off on the customer? Like if they walk in and they're like, hey, these people seem psyched. So yeah. About, is that, I mean, so in a way, the vibe kind of continues. Yeah. Right? Well, you know, Paul will say, um, you know, we... We make our what we do is make sure that our staff is taken care of. We take care of our staff, and the staff take care of the guest. So if we make sure that our staff is engaged and uh, excited about the program, as difficult as it is to learn, they're uh, excited about the program. Then that enthusiasm translates to the guest. And I think you know, while at Hearth it definitely translates in terroir, it's that's a necessity. Like you have to have those guys excited about the. 50 to 60 wines that we have by the glass. So once you made the move to beverage director, were there things that you realized that were just different in, in what your role became or things that you had to learn about how to buy and sell that maybe just weren't part of the server game? Um, well, management is different than non-management by far. Um, What's worked for you? In management or yeah. in, in buying wine? In management, it's... Uh, Managing people, I think, is one of the hardest things in the world to do. Like, managing inventories is easy. You know, they're, they're bottles that don't have emotions. They don't have conflicts. They don't have parents. They don't get sick, you know. 
um, managing people is a really tricky thing, and you can't manage people the same. So finding what works for one person as opposed to what works for another people, like some people need to be motivated by competition. You know, other people need to be motivated by, you know, positive reinforcement. Like, um, and it's hard and it's exhausting to do it because it's, it's, once you figure it out, it's actually harder than when you haven't figured it out. And I've seen managers fail at hearth. Um, and in pretty much any job I've ever had, I've seen managers fail because they don't recognize that difference. They think, okay, well, this is my management style and everyone needs to fall in line. Got it, got it. Got and it. especially in hospitality and when you have people who are directly touching your consumer base, those people need to be inspired. And inspiring them isn't always like talking uh, like how great everybody is. It's making sure that they know what their job is and when they mess up to immediately correct it. And to immediately let them know that you're watching. And it's it's really interesting uh, how, like, management neglect affects a staff. <laughs> you know, if, if the staff doesn't feel like anyone cares, then they don't care. Right. You know, like, screw it. Like, if, if this guy doesn't care that we're succeeding or failing or that this place is filthy or that, you know, uh, uh, you know our numbers aren't hitting or there's, you know, uh, bottles going missing, then why should I? Right. Um, so, you know— inspiring the pride in the place where you work is important. And I think, you know, again, I, I keep saying, you know, the Danny Meyer uh, mentality, but that's what we've taken on, and it works incredibly well, that you are taking care of the people who are taking care of your customer base um, so that they don't have any other issues. But, you know, a, again, it's, you know, it's a constant inspirational thing. And we've been very successful. We have had, uh, you know, Nick Ferrante uh, opened Hearth Restaurant nine years ago. Sure. And he's been with us, you know, he's uh, uh, now at Terroir East Village full-time, but he's been with us since we opened. There, our, our, our fucking porter, Mario, it opened the restaurant and is still with us. Um, so that sort of retention uh, is pretty unheard of. Um, most of our uh, uh, support staff, meaning like uh, food runners, back waiters, coffee guy, they've been there for a minimum of two years. And that kind of retention in a restaurant is is unbelievable. Most of our uh, front of the house service staff has been there for, you know, we have two or three new people that are six months in, but outside of that, it's two years minimum. Some of them six and now you're in an overarching role where you can really see the different restaurants. Do you feel that that has carried through even though you scaled up to more locations? Uh, yeah, I think it's important to maintain that. Um, I think the success of our restaurants is maintaining that level of inspiration with our staff. And, you know, the, the different uh, locations for the terroirs are incredibly different locations. What's you know, that uh, play out to mean? Well, uh, you know, the the clientele and the way that the East Village operates is mm -hmm. completely different than the way that Tribeca operates, which is completely different than the way that Murray Hill operates. So who who's walking in a door in the East Village that maybe wouldn't walk in the door in Murray Hill? I, I, well, I think East Village uh, is a lot of uh, people from the East Village who live there. Mm -hmm. And they'll stop in, you know, maybe they'll stop in just to say hi to Nick or Tanner or Jeffrey or Russell uh, and have like a half a glass of wine, but they'll do it four or five times a week. Um, they've developed these really strong relationships. There's only four people that work in the East Village. Because um, it's a fairly small place. It's a small place, you know, 28 seats. Um, but there's only four of them. So, you you know, if you go in there two times a week, you're going to know those guys pretty intimately. 
what um, I always dug about that place is you could go, and then that place kind of piggybacked off the hearth thing. So, right. like, if you wanted a wine from the hearth list, it was like this whole big restaurant cellar, even yeah. though it was a tiny place. You had, the, you know, the the one thing that East Village has an advantage over the other places is that it has the bottle list that hearth has. So, it's a much bigger uh, bottle program. Um, and unfortunately, that's something that we can't necessarily translate to the other locations, just, you know, by space. Sure. Um you know, Murray Hill uh, has a lot of people who live in Murray Hill. Like, Murray Hill is one of those interesting locations where, uh, you know, you and I don't say, We're, let's go out tonight. We'll go meet up in Murray Hill. I, I, I in the last uh, two months, I've spent more time in Murray Hill than I've ever spent. And should I be checking it out? I, I, I like it. I mean, the, the people that, uh, the people that are coming in there are people that either live in the neighborhood or work in the neighborhood. And there's a lot of people that work in that neighborhood. And I feel that uh, terroir has been a place, you know, it's not tonic. Not to say anything against tonic, but it's not like, it's not these beer pong, uh, you know, shots of SoCo and lime place. It's the sophisticated alternative in the neighborhood? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't, sophisticated, maybe. It's the alternative, though, mm-hmm. to these other locations where it's like, uh, yeah. I, again, I don't want to talk bad about their frat houses with liquor license. Exactly, you know, they're they're they certainly appeal to the people that go there, and there's nothing wrong with that. And if you're looking to go play beer pong, Murray Hill's the place to to do it. Um, but we are offering an alternative to that. And you know, uh, I was there last night, and there's a lot of people that come in. They come in in groups. Uh, a lot of <laughs> a lot of females. Uh, oh, I think I'm gonna have to go shows. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of uh you know all um you know uh younger you know bit younger 20 to 30s uh professional uh i i get the impression most of them are single or at least not married um hanging out there like how great of a place to work is that right Where the whole bar is 95 percent you know a single Women, women with some money to spend, <laughs> with some money, with yeah. dispo- with disposable income, who aren't looking for like, who aren't on like that uh, family marriage track, who are you know professional, um, educated women. Like, how awesome is that? Um, but that's you know that's the difference with the clientele from and and I, I would say East Village, although a lot of uh, you know EMP Gramercy folk will go to Terroir Murray Hill after their shift. I feel like. Uh, East Village draws a lot more wine industry people. I completely agree. Yeah. Like, if you haven't seen some dude for two years, it's a good chance if you go into the East Village, he'll be there. Yeah, or he signed the wall. Right, right. <laughs> he was there. You know he was there. Uh, Tribeca the, uh... is, you know, like, uh, you know, it's got a built-in uh, audience of, you know, 55-story buildings that empty at 5 o'clock every day, and they go right into Tribeca. And they're, you know, my my impressions of Tribeca is that they're not there for the East Village experience, where they don't want to get to know Nick and find out how Nick's tour was. You know, his band is going. It's more of like, we're here, it's a, this is our dining uh, event for the evening, even though it's smaller plates. We're going to have four or five glasses of wine, uh, a glass of free sherry, and we're going to have that pork blade steak and a meatball sandwich. And this is our evening. Um, whereas East Village, I think, is either you're returning home or you're about to go out. And it's like the first or last place that you're in an evening. Tribeca is the evening. Got it. 
um, Park Slope, which we're just figuring out now. Uh, I mean, congratulations on the opening. Thank you very much. Um, We're super stoked to be there. Uh, Personally, I live near there, so uh, it's uh, great for me. (laughs) Um, It like physically the space. It it was the old Great Lakes. I don't know how much you know about Park Slope, but it was was a historical place, right? Like Great Lakes was a great old dive bar. Um, but like a true dive bar, you know, like great heavy metal, uh, jukebox, uh, tatted up, uh, semi aloof, uh, bartender, female bartender, and, you know, a bathroom that, um, had seen some use, had seen some use in all sense of the word. And, uh, you know, now we've, we've kind of gone in there and, and, uh, you know, apparently there's the bathroom. We did. In One fact. of the bathrooms is the same. It's all the graffiti's there, which is always interesting because I think there's something that says like "fuck November" and then like people go in there with their kid to like change their kid and "fuck November" is written on the mirror. But um, it, you know, it's definitely uh, you know Park Slope more than any of the other locations, Murray Hill included, uh, is depends it demands the neighborhood to get behind us. Oh, is that true? Oh yeah, like people don't uh, you know go out and say. Let's go to Brooklyn. Let's go hang out on Park Slope. Oh, okay. You like know, the cats from Manhattan are like, I know where we're going to go. Yeah, drink. let's jump on the uh, R train, get off a of Union, and walk to Terroir Park Slope. It's, you know, the families that are there. And they've been incredibly receptive. Um, but it's becoming, again, I think more than any of the other locations, it's a restaurant more than it is a wine bar. You know, people are coming there and everyone's eating and everyone's getting, you know, that's that's their whole evening. And their kid sits there and their kid has, you know, bone marrow on a bruschetta for the first time. And that's dinner. That's family dinner. And then it's a lot of dates too, like a lot of like Brooklynite dates. Um, So each location has its own terroir, which I think is a concept that, you know, we maybe mistakenly kind of fell into with uh, East Village originally because I think the original concept for East Village was, you know, it's going to be this um, uh, like plastic bar filled with dirt so you could see different subsoils and, you know, like that's what terroir is. And, you know, we just didn't have the money to do that. And so we said, well, you know, screw it, like leave the floors because the floors are, you know, the original space of uh, like that's what the floors look like in the East Village, and then what it became is like, oh my God, this is this is what it, it's like to live in the East Village. It's small, um, you know. If you're by the radiator, it's really hot. If you're by the door, it's really cold. Um, you know, the the uh, floors kind of uneven and jacked up and and not consistent. Like part of it's tile, part of it's concrete, um, and that's what it's like. That's the terroir of the East Village. And we did this, and then we followed that concept with Tribeca, which. You know, when you walk into Tribeca, you feel like you're in a place in Tribeca, like super high ceilings. Um, you know, it feels like a loft space in Tribeca, um, which is like, I think it's such a cool concept. Like we we never want to kick ourselves into a neighborhood and say, you know, this is who we are and you guys better fall in line. We want to be part of that neighborhood. Um, and that, you know, I, I think we'd be foolish if our name was Terroir and we didn't take the Terroir of, of the neighborhood. So. so don't try to put Tokai in Jevray. Exactly. Yeah. But so let me ask you, because I mean, I think one of the real interesting things about you is I think a lot of people moved to New York who maybe didn't see themselves in the restaurant business. Maybe they're doing theater. Maybe they're doing music. Maybe they're doing film, something cultural. Mm -hmm. They're drawn to to Paul. And for a lot of people, he's like 
the wine university for a lot of people, whether they just have a couple glasses of wine at the bar or they end up working for them. So if that's the case, how do you make that work for you as an employee who wants to work for them? Because you clearly have, you've made it all the way through from starting at the server. Now you're overseeing the whole company in terms of beverage, which is one of the big hallmarks of the company. What would you say as a piece of advice to a guy who wants to go work for Paul? Because a lot of people do. <laughs> I could. Uh, I would say uh, the first thing is when you interview with Paul, make sure that you maintain eye contact. Oh, huge with Paul. Um, but be open-minded, and you know, I think uh, one thing that's worked with me with Paul is uh, honesty. Um, if you don't know something, uh, be honest about it. And then the next time he asks you, make sure that you know it. Um, I think that goes a huge way with him. Um, he's less concerned uh, about what your knowledge and experience in wine is. In fact, I, I would almost go out and say that that is a, a tertiary note on how he hires. He hires on hospitality first and foremost and um, – personality and how those personalities will fit and what you're want he feels like service and wine knowledge are things that can be taught if you're willing to learn them they can be taught what can't be taught is a sense of hospitality and an excitement about what you're doing and empathy and empathy i think is is you know 70 percent of hospitality is empathy um so you know i i what i what i would say is don't try and impress paul like, don't go in there gangbusters and say, hey, Paul, I got something crazy for you. Or, you know, try and challenge him or anything. Like, he's he's not really susceptible to that. Like, he's not his ego doesn't survive on you being intimidated by him. His ego survives. It's a self-fulfilling ego. He does something and then loves what he does. And that's where his, you know, his, his ultimate ego comes from. It's not coming from you saying, I think you're amazing. Like, he doesn't really thrive on and you happen to have brought some wine to drink. I did, yeah, which actually has a pretty good story behind it. Uh, here, let me uh, allow me to pour some for Thank you. Thank you, sir. So this is the, the Canol uh, Gruner Veltliner uh, Leubenberg 2007 Smarag. And uh, can I tell a story? Do you mind? That's what we live for. Awesome. So I went to Austria. I did the Vivinum. Uh, there's a whole great story about me and Willy Klinger from the Austrian Wine Marketing Board where I, I, I mistakenly hugged him at one point, and it was the most awkward thing I've done in my life. He was like, my name is Mr. Klinger, and you, you clinged him? And yeah. you're like, I thought you were telling me to cling on. Well, I had met him before, and... This guy worked for Brunemeyer, right? Is that the same guy? Willy Klinger? Yeah. Uh, no, Willy Brunemeyer works is Brunemeyer. No, but there's another guy who works for you. Know, well, uh, Willy Klinger is the head of, the, of, <laughs> of North America for the Austrian wine market. Okay. Board. And he's he's... He's probably about four and a half feet tall, ah. and they call him the general because he commands a room. And if you ask him, he'll recite uh, poetry in, in German. It's, he's an incredible person. And I met him once with Aldo Somm. They came into the restaurant. Oh, okay. And I blinded them. We cooked for him, and I blinded them. And like he was really impressed with what I was able to do, and they had a great time. And then I got invited to Vivinum. But before that was uh, the Magnum party at Hearth the Austrian Magnum party three years ago at Hearth, which was epic. I broke my nose that night, um, but it was epic. And right before that, he showed up to like discuss details with Paul. And I said, hey, Billy. And I kind of shook my hand. I, I put my hand out to shake. And he wa- kept walking toward me, so I wound up hugging him. 
<laughs> but he wasn't expecting a hug, so he just kind of put his arms down, and I was sort of <laughs> hugging this guy who was not hugging me back. It was the most awkward thing I've ever done. But um, <laughs> I got I got invited to Vivinum in Vienna, and Paul said, "Well, why don't you have them adjust the dates of the flight and go early and go tour." Uh, Austria and, oh, okay. and, the, and the wine regions. And I said, well, that's a great idea. And I went three days early and, and I had um, the Austrian Wine Marketing Board set up a bunch of appointments and um, I rented a car and then, you know, you get off the airplane at like 6.30 in the morning and I get to the car and it's a stick shift car. And I haven't driven a stick shift car. I, I've never driven, you know, I, I don't drive stick shift. I may have driven a car that was in a manual maybe three times in my life. And here I'm in a foreign country. It's 8 o'clock in the morning, and I'm driving a fucking stick shift car, like, killing it. Every stop sign I came to, it just killed it, and I had to restart it. So the day two, I went to uh, FX Peekler, and then my next stop was um, Rainervus, um, and then to Canole. And and this is the canola that you brought here. Today. This is the canola that I brought exactly. And uh, I, uh, FX Peekler and Rainer Vest at the time were probably about uh, half a mile from each other in the same town. And it took me two and a half hours to get there, and I I almost had a mental breakdown. I I was convinced that I was going to back over two Austrian girls playing. I was convinced I was going to kill them. Like I, I, like I couldn't, I couldn't find it. The GPS didn't, you know, kept leading me to the, some dead end, and I, I literally went to like the very bottom of like I don't know what I'm, uh, what am I going to do? I'm just going to park the car and I'm going to walk back to Vienna and jump on a plane and just go home because I can't. I, I'm going to, or I'm going to be that crazy guy who like huddles himself in the corner and like talks to himself. And eventually, I found Rainer Vess two hours late. And then I went to Canole, and I sat with Canole, and uh, Emmer Canole um, came in from the vineyards. And I, I don't know if you've met him. He's like a he's you know relatively young, I guess for for winemakers. He's probably in his mid thirties, and he did not want to be sitting with me. And he came in, and I was two hours late. And he came in, and he said, you know, so what do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't know. Like, what do you want to do? And he's like, what do I want to do? I want to go back in the vineyards. <laughs> so what do you want to do? And I was like, well, you know, we can taste uh, old stuff. And he's like, all right. And he took me down into his cellar. Which we is, can taste old stuff. Yeah, I was like, I went straight <laughs> for it. Like, yeah, why not? You know, what, you know, what do you go got for that's the 20 years old? Yeah. Um, and he, uh, he took me down into the cellar, which is below his house. And then we sat on a... Um, a picnic bench in his driveway, which is his winery and his house. And his like son was like making like the bunny ears, like sticking his tongue out through the kitchen window. And I'm drinking canole, like uh, multiple, multiple vintages and multiple um, uh, ripeness levels of canole sitting there with the man while his son's doing this. And then as I walked back to the car, which I parked like probably a mile and a half away because I was done driving it, um, the sun started setting over the uh, Danube River, and I was like, oh, my God, this is, like, the best day of my life. And is so that I, when Willie Klinger showed up and gave you a hug? No, that <laughs> that was actually at Hearth uh, uh, months before. But it, it was one of those days where, like, you you hit the lowest that you can go. Like, yeah. you're about to lose your mind, and then you end at the highest that you can be, which is, like, this beautiful sunset over Dernstein, like, uh, you know, having drank phenomenal, like, what I would consider Grand Cru wine. Um, with the winemaker and his son making bunny ears at me. So, like, that that's the story that I think is more important than, you know, making somebody feel uncomfortable about 
what they do or don't know about wine. So when someone comes into terroir and they're like, I don't like Riesling, how do you translate that experience that you had to well, them in a way that works for both of you? Uh, it's usually that 15-minute story. And then, you know, I have <laughs> to, like, stop them from walking the out. Yeah, lead, lead, always lead with a hug. Um, well, ultimately, like, the summer of Riesling kind of forced us all to, like, think about selling wine. And, uh, you know, people always come in and they say, I don't like Riesling, it's too sweet. And then you say, okay, well, what do you normally drink? And let me find Riesling that's going to fit that category. And I think the beauty about doing um, something uh, around Riesling as opposed to uh, numerous other varietals is that Riesling is so incredibly diverse um, that you can find something for that Sauvignon Blanc drinker who only drinks Sauvignon Blanc. You can find something for that Chardonnay drinker who drinks California Chardonnays. You can find something for somebody who wants something with you know a little sweetness and residual sugar. Like you can cover the gambit, and at the same time, it is still Riesling. Like you're still you know you're drinking Riesling, even if it's not you know the Riesling that you think that you know, which is like you know the Blue Nun sort of super sweet. Stuff. So it's an interesting conversation. I think we've made some converts. Uh, we've definitely made some en enemies. We've definitely, um, there's a, a regular of ours at the restaurant who goes to East Village, but he doesn't, we see him at the restaurant more in the four and a half months of summer because he doesn't, he refuses to drink Riesling. And at Hearth, you, we still have other options by the glass. So it's, it's you know, it's a tough thing, but, you know. Uh, I How mean, did you respond, for instance, in the way that you felt about things to the Robert Sistema Village Voice article that criticized the summer of Riesling in the restaurant? Uh, well, that was our first year. Um, I, I will say, and, and one of the most difficult things for working for Paul is that, you know, it's hard to work for a guy who's kind of always right. And uh, I had my doubts about summer of Riesling at first. And I thought it was aggressive, and I thought, like, people are, you know, we, we've just opened, and we're going to alienate a bunch of people by saying no, which is what you don't do in hospitality, right? You never say no, and yet this here's, we're, we're doing nothing but saying no, you're drinking this. Uh, so when that article came out, I, I felt more like, um, I don't know, I felt like he was uninformed about I felt like it was a poorly written article to begin with. And because it made such bold statements, it was an angering article. You know, like it was, you know, if somebody is uninformed, but they say it quietly, you're like, okay, well, I can at least educate this or or know that this guy doesn't really know what he's talking about. When you say it boldly, like the way he said it, because he had reviewed wine bars. And the reason why he came into terroir was because so many of his readers had said, I can't believe you haven't included or at least reviewed Terroir wine bar, if you're going to make a top 10 list of wine bars in New York you, and you haven't been into terroir. So I think he already had kind of a chip on his shoulder of like, here's a bunch of people telling me I'm going to love this place. And, and, and I have no doubt that he probably had a, an off-putting experience. But, you know, the things that he said, like, I, I believe like, um, what, what was it that he said, say, and he's like, I couldn't believe it was sweet or something like that. Like somebody who had apparently had studied German and yet didn't know the German dramatic words for these wines. And, and I don't think asked, you know, which is what we're about. You know, our, our wine program, especially in the summer of Riesling, forces you to ask questions. Um, and I don't think, I, I, you know, not knowing his, what his actual experience was, I got the feeling from reading it that he didn't really ask any questions. He kind of went in there with sort of a chip on his shoulder of like, I'm going to hate this place. That's why, you know, I'm going to prove that I was right about the ten, top 10 
uh, by saying that this place wasn't worth my time. Um, I don't know the guy, you know, I don't, I certainly don't read him and, and it didn't before. And it's not like I, I'm averse to reading him. I just don't. Um, but that's kind of how I feel. Like it was an uninformed, loud criticism. If you want to change the conversation about a wine topic, how important is it to embrace the whole community? Because what I feel like is that the summer of Riesling became super big as a phenomenon not just because of what you guys did, but because you included so many other restaurants in it. Like you did it on your own for a couple of years and then you reached out to other restaurants and been like, hey, you can be a part of this too. And that was a significant number of restaurants in many different locations mm-hmm. throughout New York, other places. Yeah, we want, last year, I think we were at uh, over 500 countrywide, including Alaska, which is pretty, pretty fucking cool. Um, well, you know, I think... Uh, uh, Riesling is a uh, sommelier's grape, right? Like uh, it's it's the grape that every <clears throat> excuse me every wine director loves and feels like they can't put on their list because people won't buy it. Um, and I've I felt like that Gruner Veltliner might have been the same way. Um, so we gave we gave uh, psalms and wine directors uh, an opportunity to say we're part of something, and I get to. You know, because we didn't dictate what wines they were to pour. They got to choose whatever wines that, uh, the, like, no, they absolutely. put on their list. Yeah, you included them in the process with their input. Exactly, yeah. So, like, we didn't say you must have uh, these four wines that we're representing all over. It was whatever Rieslings you like, we want you to put on. Like three I, of them by the glass. And I think that sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, a nationwide recognition of the grape allowed a lot of people to go, awesome, I get to do this, and it's backed up by all the other 500 restaurants that are participating in this. And there's a website, and, you know, so I think it allowed uh, a lot of people to kind of express what they wanted to do already. Um, I, You know, we certainly didn't force re- Summer Riesling upon anybody that didn't like Riesling. You know, there was nobody who got involved who was like, yeah, I'm not really involved. I, I don't really like Riesling, but, you know, there's a website. So, you know, I mean, it was all people who were like, seemed to be waiting for the opportunity to express that love. And, I, and you know, I mean... I won't say that some of Riesling and Paul uh, revitalized Riesling in New York, but there's a lot of places that have, you know, multiple Rieslings by the glass, you know, even now. Like there's, you know, there'll be an Austrian and a German or, you know, Finger Lakes and, and uh, you know, Southern Hemisphere, New Zealand. I think that's huge, you know. And it's, you know, I think the conversation uh, has changed to where it used to be, uh, Psalms and wine directors had to put things on to appease their clientele. And now I feel like they are putting things on in order to attract a certain type of clientele. I, I sat across, I don't, I don't know if she'll ever remember this, but I sat across Laura Manick at a, at a lunch once. And I don't remember who it was. It said something like, I have to have that wine on my list because, you know, uh, you know my clientele, would, it demands it. Uh-huh. And Laura had said something, which I think is she's uh, worked her way out of now with with Cork Buzz. But she said, if we all uh, put on what we loved, if we all only bought wines that we loved, we'd be sitting alone in a cellar full of Gruner Veltliner. <laughs> and, you know, and like it, it, that might have been true 10 years ago, but I don't think it's true anymore. You know, I think that I think that, uh, you know, being a wine director now is a lot more exciting because you can turn people on. And it's about that conversation that you have with the guests. And it's about. You know, wine doesn't bring people into a restaurant. 
you know, the food and the chef brings people into the restaurant. So if you're, if you have that venue already and people are already sitting down, you, you can challenge them as long as you back it up with hospitality and knowledge. That's, that's the biggest trick. And that's what we, um, force upon our, uh, servers and our, and our, uh, employees is that we're making a very bold statement. And in order to make that statement, we better back it up by saying, I understand that you don't understand these things. Let me help you. Let me, let me, ta- let me ask you questions about you so I can find you the, white, the right wine. And I think that's the most important thing about a diverse, uh, a diverse wine program. Because you could put, you know, you could sell wine. You know, like you can put wine that everyone knows and people will buy it. I'm like, that's not a big deal. If you want to make money and, and not have to think about it and not be challenged by it, you could sell wine easy. You just have it. You have red and white wines and people will buy it. It's, you know, pushing that envelope and then backing it up with hospitality. And, and I will say, like, uh, you know, we, we're not in the wine business. We're in the hospitality business. Um, and what does that mean for you? I mean, I feel like you worked there for a long time mm-hmm. and you're not a superstar. Like, people don't – you're not a household name. You know, like people aren't like, hey, man. Well, my mom, you know? my mom thinks very highly of me. <laughs> well, so let, let me just say that. But I mean, what's it feel like <laughs> to work super hard, put hospitality first, and not get the top chef recognition? What's that, what's that actually a day at work like? Uh, you, for me personally, yeah. like, what is it to be overshadowed by a guy like Paul Greco? I mean, I guess. Or, Fucking let him have it. <laughs> like, yeah. let him have the light. He, one, he deserves it. Second, I don't want that kind of... Uh, I, I don't think I, 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 ironically, coming from, you know, acting, which is all about wanting the recognition and wanting to make sure that you're in front of people and that people know who you are. You know, I, I think I'm the, the exact opposite. What, what's, what's really important for me is that uh, the staff that I have and the people that I work for recognize the work that I'm doing and that the restaurants and wine bars that I'm overseeing are, are successful and successful in the way that we want them to be like it, you know, whether people know me or not, the fact that they love one of the terroirs is a success for me. And, and, you know, again, I don't think I, I don't really want, um, you know, I don't want any more recognition than that. Like, I don't think I'd be able to sustain it. I don't think I'm, you know, I think there are people out there who deserve a lot more recognition than I, What's important to me is that the places that I manage and operate are successful from top to bottom, from, you know, a uh, uh, food runner support staff to, you know, Paul and Marco looking at me going, all right, cool, we, we did something pretty cool here. And we're doing it our way, I, th- I think. We're doing it our way, which, you know, is not wholly unique, but it's very gratifying. There's been a lot of Zweigelt through your glass, a lot of Riesling passed through your door. What is uh, your standout drinking story? What's the one you really remember? Uh, well, you know, that, that story with uh, Emmer Canole is, is pretty standout. But I would say, like, the, you, you talk about aha moments, right? And I think most people's aha moments are, are red. Um, I'm much more of a white wine guy. I, uh, the, the top 20 wines for me have all been white. Um, I, I think that there's a you know complexity and diversity and uh, and a drinkability, which is ultimately what you need in a wine. Uh, it shows through much more uh, in the white wines that I've had than in the red. Um, the the aha moment was a Rotor Veltliner uh, from Leth 1990. 
which is a, a, at the time of varietal, I didn't know, um, you know, of an age that I couldn't believe. And it had so much uh, life and complexity to it that it was it was the thing you know like that you didn't want to finish in the glass you wanted to like you wanted that little and we tasted it at a family meal i think it was somebody's last day and so you know somebody had been in the company for a while and paul brought that wine up and it like it it blew my mind and that's where i was like okay i get it now i get that why people pursue this with you know a passion that's you know uh, few people have in their life. The people who follow wine and go after wine have a, an amazing amount of passion for it. Much like, you know, the I would attribute it to like a college football fan. Somebody who like, you know, went to Michigan and every day, every game follows Michigan. No matter that the the team changes every four years, it's Michigan that they're in. And, and I would say people who are passionate about wine are, are passionate in that same spirit. So I would say it, that was definitely the moment. I've had some pretty amazing wines. Um, uh, what did I have? The um, 76 uh, Oue uh, Vouvray Demisec was a, a life-changing experience. Um, you know, birth year, my birth year, it like, uh, it, you know, it was Demisec. So there was like a bit of sugar, but that sugar had like changed into richness I mean, it was, uh, again, it was something that kind of, uh, that stayed with me, like, on the train home, going to sleep. I still tasted it, and that was pretty incredible. Matt Stanton, thank you for being on the show today. Hey, thank you. I hope you, I hope you enjoyed. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.